Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my partner in heresy, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you today? I am well. I just poured myself a cuppa because we are about to get into some serious British television reviewing this episode, and I figured I needed to have the appropriate beverage. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's that's a good way of introducing what I think will be sort of a summer series at the cinema. Uh, we're going to be doing a bit more on pop culture, TV, film, as we sort of develop some of the themes for the rest of the season. So yeah, like this is our, our first episode. Not that we haven't done this kind of thing before, especially around Halloween. But yeah, we wanted to sort of have a little bit more fun and get into some pop culture stuff. So what is our first entry in this series, Travis? What are we doing today? Well, I'm glad you asked. Today we will be discussing a series, a mini-series. I think they have a fancier name now. You're not supposed to call things mini-series anymore, but a mini-series basically called Midwinter of the Spirit. Deliverance ministry requires a wide skill set. Your job is to protect people from the intrusion into their lives of entities which half the professed Christians in this country don't believe in. The thing is, it wasn't just murder, was it? Sacrilege. The word exorcist is bad enough. I want a new kind of deliverance. Someone with experience in modern life. Somebody's falling from the tower. Someone you've lost who's so powerfully in your mind. My father died in a car crash. How can I be truthful with her about everything that's going on in my life? There are dangers in this kind of world, Marilyn. If you're weak, they'll get it. It is based on a novel by Phil Rickman, and it concerns something called Deliverance Ministry. And our main character is a Church of England priest, an Anglican priest named Merrily, which which I love because it's so happy. Merrily um, Watkins, right? Victor yeah. Merrily Watkins, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so she's... She's wonderful, and I love her, of course. Um, but she is newly chosen to be to serve in her diocese as a deliverance minister. A lot of you may be asking yourselves, what is a deliverance minister? And we are here to help you out. It is an exorcist. She is an Anglican exorcist. They just they don't like the word anymore because it sounds less cool to them than deliverance minister. Or maybe it's like a euphemism, right? I don't know. We don't it want to scare interesting people. To know, it would be interesting to know the, the history of how that label got applied. Because, yeah, we exorcist, people know what that is. And deliverance, maybe it is a bit euphemistic. And it's like, oh, like you have problem, like for really serious problems, like might be demons, might be other kinds of serious problems. I don't know. So if you could yeah. elaborate, I don't know. <laughs> I can say a little bit about it. Um, I am no expert, but this is sort of vaguely part of my spiritual inheritance as an Episcopalian. So the Episcopal Church, as many of you know, is a is part of the worldwide Anglican Communion, and so definitely related to the Church of England. Deliverance Ministry is 
sort of a a ministry of last resort, as I understand it. So the idea in very sort of post-enlightenment fashion, um, one is supposed to do a kind of process of elimination and determine that it can't be any other cause. The problem that someone is having cannot be something that is, you know, a delusion that's born of mental illness. How, how do you eliminate that as a possibility? I'm not sure. But um, you're, it's not a physical ailment. It's not um, a psychological ailment. It is indeed a spiritual malady and um, evil forces must be at work. And so you give these kinds of prayers and rituals a shot. Um, mm-hmm. I should say I definitely texted my bishop um, this past week and it was like, hey, uh, doing this podcast on this topic. Do you have anything in particular, any sources you think I should look at? Um, and without a word, I just got, he's just sent me this article, this really disturbing article, something that had happened in the Bay Area recently that I thought I should mention. Um, there is an evangelical Pentecostal church in San Jose and um, a kind of informal house church situation. And um, a young girl uh, was believed to be possessed by a demon. And so um, a ritual um, exorcism was performed and um, apparently it involved, um, and this content is disturbing, so feel free to skip this part just the next minute or so. Um, But um, during the ceremony, the young girl died um, of asphyxiation somehow when they were trying to, yeah, I think they were trying to induce vomiting to kind of get the demon out of her in some way. Um, So I would say sort of backing up uh, to the broader, to the Anglican context out of the Pentecostal context, that's sort of locally what's going on here. But back to the Church of England, back to the Episcopal Church, this is something that I think is treated with both fascination and like maybe even a little bit of embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't hear uh, folks from either of these traditions, generally speaking, except at the margins, talking a lot about things like we've discussed a bit before on the podcast, things like spiritual warfare, the reality of demons in the world and that they need to be you know, battled with um with ceremonies or rituals or anything like that. This is definitely a fringe topic, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, and just to jump forward for a second, you sort of get that impression from this three-parter series in the character of Hugh. If you you know what I mean, like Hugh is like sort of this grizzled, my notes, he he appears as a burnt out Harry Potter at 60. That seems to be how he's like styled and quaffed (laughs) and stuff. But Hugh's whole demeanor is like, right, like this sort of hardcore minority within the church establishment dedicated to the basics of metaphysical trench warfare, as I think he puts it at some point. And yeah, like you kind of get the sense from his character and his sort of lone gunman from the X-Files personality like that. This is something that's at once real and like tolerated, if not supported but also on the fringe. And so it's both establishment and kind of anti-establishment at the same time, which I think is an interesting dynamic. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Um, The dynamic of being both of a kind of deep ambivalence about the topic, um, but also about the church as we get further into it. I wanted to say a little bit about our author next, Phil Rickman. 
Um, so this, there's a whole series of Merrily Watkins books that he wrote. Apparently, this is the only one, I believe it's the second in the series, that's been adapted for TV, for the series for ITV. Um, and he gets all bent out of shape on his website about what happened. Um, basically, he was hoping for a series of TV shows, um, multi-part TV shows like this one, produced by the same folks. But because, as he claims, most people recorded this so that they, th they could watch a competing show on a different channel, his show was shelved and another show called Unforgiven, nope, Unforgotten, there we go, was mm -hmm. given a second season while his show was not. Um, Unforgotten, just in case you were wondering, is an amazing TV show about like cold case murder files and it's a little dark, but um, it's like it's firmly grounded in a sense of um, like justice doesn't have an expiration date, I guess. This is a terrible, terrible commercial that <laughs> I'm that, writing. Is that a tagline from the It show? is definitely <laughs> not. I'm just still asleep, um, so I cannot do much better. Um, but it's beautifully, it's beautifully portrayed. The acting in particular is excellent. So that is all. Anyway, um, so, so you're saying it could, it could possibly be better than Midwinter of the Spirit. Just, I mean, is anything, is it possible for anything to be better than Midwinter of the Spirit? That's certainly debatable. Um, <laughs> but I, but I really did enjoy. I had so much fun, and I will also say that my priest was super into it. She's like, "It's a woman priest on TV, Travis. This is huge." <laughs> yeah, um, and I want to talk more about that because I think like, like the whole right representation angle is is important. Uh, the gender dynamics in the show are 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 worth digging into a bit. I would say. Yes. <laughs> one one thing else to mention about the production: it's 2015. And the person who wrote the teleplay, I guess, with Phil Rickman is Stephen uh, Volk or Folk, I want to say, because it's, it's the word in German, but probably you'd say Stephen Volk. And he is noteworthy for scripting, and I guess also directing. Let me just double check. the uh, This really sort of infamous British mockumentary uh, he, yeah, so he wrote the teleplay for uh, the, the mockumentary on the BBC Ghostwatch, which is like this sort of found footage representation of a haunted house and it's Halloween. And it what it seems to be showing is a news camera crew documenting this haunted house. And like there's like scary stuff happening in the background, but it, it has this whole like verisimilitude angle of looking like a, a real news broadcast sort of like the way people talk about the hg the hg wells orson wells war of the world of the world 30s yeah as like scaring people to death well like that happened with with uh with ghost watch in the early 90s so uh, again you can watch ghost watch on archive.org for free pretty amazing it is scary as hell and it did lead to some some suicides, uh, if I if I recall correctly. So it's like it's like sort of a, there's some, there's some like you know notoriousness there, but yeah, like totally a major I would say like a heavyweight a heavy hitter to be uh, scripting co-scripting this this piece. Uh, so I was I was impressed to see that. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. I looked at a couple of the reviews of the 
miniseries and some folks had particular um, critiques of the sound, the use of spooky music that it gave away some of the scares. Um, yeah. Like I, yeah. I mean, I guess it depends. Like if you think the point of the scares is just to be startled, like with a jump scare, mm-hmm. I mean, right, like, right. but like, again, like if you want to build atmosphere and it's not just about being startled, but it's about like a, a general, environment suffused with dread i mean i think yeah that's interesting though to to point that out it's a vibe people it's a vibe like just go with it um yeah that there's (laughs) that there might be something else to watching a miniseries like this than um jumping in your on your couch like i i don't know yeah i agree with you and there are there there is for me i thought there was at least one scare that was that was like a sort of genuinely scary jump scare yeah, there, not so many, but the one. I mean, like you don't want to like again. Like it's not like a, it's not like a cheap horror film. I mean, it is like a horror <laughs> genre thing. But like, if if it's if it's like about maximizing jump scares, it's like that's. I don't think that's what this show is in the business of doing. Right, I think it's a genre mistake to be looking for that. I think people are like, oh, it's scary, therefore it must conform to like a horror movie, you know, in a theater yeah. kind of, you know, spill your popcorn yeah. and moment. That's not what, so, and that's not what it no. is. It's, it's a, and it's a three-parter. I, I, I did watch it in a single sitting. Like, you can. It's like, it would, this takes a little bit. It's not, I don't think it's even three hours to do that, though, because you think each episode's about 47 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's like a longish movie. It's not totally burdensome. In terms of like the style and the atmosphere and the vibe, like how would you describe the look of this this production? You may recall the early Twilight films used a filter that made everything look bluer, I would say, took out the kind of red tones in the yeah. world and gave it a kind of very specific look. I would say here everyone looked pale and just slightly colorless but you know maybe that's just a an english problem <laughs> maybe i'm just commenting on yeah. race accidentally um well there's more to be said about that too but <laughs> there, there definitely is um but yeah what what did you notice klaus well one of my favorite scenes was in the beginning at like the training there like like uh vicar merrily watkins is on retreat and she's in what i think is supposed to be like in the countryside mountains of wales in the brecon beacons and the shots of that those mountainscapes were impressive and like the sort of desolation where these like six or so anglican vicars are being taught the basics of metaphysical trench warfare by hugh evil harry potter man who i mentioned before (laughs) And like, yeah, there's there's a scene that actually does remind me a lot of Ghost Watch when they when Hugh's like sort of talking, he's sort of talking in the beginning, and then he he takes them into the kitchen, and he's like, "Do you feel anything in here?" <laughs> and <laughs> and Merrily's like, "I do," and he's like, "Well, there, you know, there's been there's been a sighting here. There's this place is haunted." And then the light bulb goes out dramatically, and he's like, "The first rule of being a deliverance minister is." Always check, Always the check fuse your box. fuses. Yes. <laughs> so I like that sequence, but and that's that sort of gets into one of the dynamics that I wanted to talk about in terms of like the gender too, because that's also the scene where after that after that that like sort of fuse box line, they're smoking outside, Hugh and Merrily, and it's one of the scenes where Hugh's like he's kind of like uh, I don't know if you're cut out for this. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's a that's something that sort of recurs through the entire the entire series. And the reason that he thinks that she might be an inappropriate choice is that she's grieving. She's because her husband died in an auto wreck, and he died with, if I'm if I'm remembering this correctly, with the woman. Uh, with whom he was having an affair, yes. so like she, she, she like lost her husband, and like also, the the existence of this extramarital betrayal was also revealed, mm-hmm. and so like there's like a lot of like trauma there, and she's just moved to a new parish, and so she's sort of like in flux, and Hugh's like, oh, like you're going through all these things, like that makes you vulnerable to the demons getting inside you, basically. Right, she's got. She's got damage to her spiritual armor, Klaus. She's (laughs) she's unfit to serve in the army of the Lord. Um, Yeah, the... She she gets that critique also from her daughter. It's sort of coming at all sides, and then it eventually gets echoed by another character, Angela Purefoy, that we'll talk about. Um, This idea that because of her failures in her own marriage, um, which are all her fault, apparently, um, to keep her husband occupied. Therefore, he is forced to have an affair through no fault of his own. And um, then her role is to grieve his loss uh, for the right amount of time in the proper way and to forgive him for the affair all at once. And because she fails to do all of this, she is um, a bad mother, a bad wife, um, and a bad exorcist all at the same time. Right. And I think what's sometimes, and maybe this is a strength of the show, or maybe this is like a profound weakness of the show. The show like buys into the fact that she's, she's compromised on some level. Like, and like, like, of course it, it makes sense that she would be emotionally upset by all those things, obviously, but it also continues to be a problem for her as like, she like her weakness is portrayed as being one of the major causes for all of the all of the misfortunes that befall her parish. The cathedral is at Her- is at Hereford. Yes. So um, right. right, all the all the all the misfortunes that happen in Hereford. The other thing I guess I would say about the the atmosphere, like yeah, like you're saying the color filter. I would say it's a, if there was like a dark academia filter on Instagram, that would be <laughs> that would be what was going on here. Because yeah, there is like the it is a, there's a sort of a darkening effect and a blue effect. I do think they're like uh, her dead husband appears in red at certain points, like in a dream sequence, and mm-hmm. that red does sort of pop. But like so, like there's sort of like these red velvet sort of vibes and and like but yeah, it's it's very dark. There's a lot of uh, you know lingering shots on the sort of traditional Gothic architecture. And this, to me, also plays into a bit of context. Like, this is 2015 when the show was made and the Brexit referendum was on the horizon. And there's a lot of attention paid to, like, sort of the traditions of England, the traditions of the church. The fate of the nation and the fate of the Anglican church seem to be tied up in this sort of narrative of this show. And they're represented as being under siege from a cabal of Satanists. And, and so, like, this sort of sense that England is losing its traditions, that it's, like, its mores and ways of life and sacred geography is being literally attacked in the show. 
And so, like, that also, like, this sort of, you get a lot of this sort of old-fashioned, interesting, gothic, neo-gothic revival kind of architecture. And it seems important, from my perspective, to the kind of cultural conservatism and political conservatism that is one of the, one of the, uh, for me, like, sort of one of the premises of the show. I think that's right. Um, it's interesting how the architecture uh, reflects, um, the look of the show reflects on that investment in the church as this um, important battleground, spiritual battleground yeah. for what happens, which is really odd and surprising. I think it reflects on my own priest's comment like, oh, there's there's a woman priest who is a protagonist in a show as if that matters, as if anyone's paying attention to um, branches of Christianity that are not either evangelical or Catholic, which seem to be the two that get some, or I should say, or in the States, certainly um, yeah. fundamentalist Mormons also get a little bit of screen time these days. Definitely. Um, but that... Uh, the Church of England remains a relevant um, place that the devil might want to attack. Like it might be somehow important for that to be uh, won over by Satan is a bit of a surprise. And you see that, I think, in the architecture that's reflected, like, as you said, the institutions, um, but in particular, the church are uh, play a huge role um, here. And yeah, I think that is not unrelated to larger political questions, anxieties about what it means to be English, what traditions are changing and becoming less important. In a sense, that's the thing that feels like the most um, fantastical. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> right. The assumption that the church is like the the main spiritual police force preserving the soul of England. For me, I was like, wow, like, you really think that, huh? <laughs> like, yeah. And... Uh, and as we'll get into um, who who represents the church, the fact that there's a woman priest, the fact that there is a black bishop, um, those things um, can be read in a number of different ways. I want to be careful here because um, on the one hand, you can you can read those as oh look at look at the church, it's changing, it's no longer the traditional bastion of a certain kind of um, race and gender presentation that represents a kind of strength and tradition um, that we're, we're um, mourning those changes. On the other, uh, we have an ambiguous ending with regard to the bishop and the priest here. One of them ends up our, our hero and the other does not. Um, yeah, one and could I think read that as, as ambiguous in the sense that um, one... Although we have a flawed hero, she ends up triumphing in the end. Spoiler alert. What do you think, Klaus? Yeah, I think we're, we're going to have to spoil it. I mean, and of course, like, if, you, if you're interested, go rent it on wherever you rent your videos, online or whatever, or BritBox, etc. But yeah, like, she is recruited into this deliverance ministry role by Bishop... Was it Bishop Mick? What's the guy's name? Yes. Mm -hmm. Bishop Mick, who is black. And Bishop Mick ends up in the last scene to be revealed as the sort of magus, Satanist, head honcho organizer who is trying to destroy the church from the inside out and who picked her because he knew she was emotionally vulnerable. 
Like he did put her in harm's way deliberately by like considering her background and trying to exploit her weaknesses. And so I think you're right. Yeah. Like you're like, you can see this. It's like, Oh, it's so progressive to have these uh, minority main characters, but the show is showing that like part of her vulnerability is linked to her gender roles and, and is, is trying to, I think, make a point about, I don't know. Maybe it's just like, it's playing with the expectations of feminine weakness. I'm not sure. But like mm-hmm. the, the, the the fact is is that her character through these kinds of failures of femininity is 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 asserted by the show to be like the 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 weak link who allow who's who's one of the reasons that this sort of demonic presence continues to linger in the show and then like again as you say like she is vindicated and is kind of the last person standing at the end in certain ways and is is willing to embrace the role of deliverance exorcist person but yeah like i think that that sort of speaks to the sort of interesting gender dynamics of the show and then of course like obviously like the bad guy is like a scary black man who's a satan <laughs> you know it's like okay, <laughs> right, okay. Right. Oh. it's like oh you know like and he's and he's infiltrated the church bureaucracy and this to me like we we're talking not just about like uh anti-institutional brexit stuff but like it also anticipates a lot of the QAnon deep state paranoia and beliefs about cabals of pedophiles and Satan. Literally that's what happens in the show. It's like pedophile Satanists are the, are the villains in the show. And like, it's, it's to me, it was like so striking to see that trope being rehearsed here, especially a number of years before the, the QAnon discourse and community grew up. But yeah, like really just, I don't know. In some ways, like I can see, like the thing you, you you said about Rickman's response, like the show didn't get a huge amount of play and press, and it wasn't a smash success. But it does, to me, seem to be really on had its finger on the pulse of a lot of the sort of I don't know most powerful and most destructive cultural elements that we're we're dealing with today. You know, six years yeah. later, seven years later. I also want want to think about the reversal. Um, at play here, the the way that Marilee at the end sort of overcomes um, the odds and her supposed weaknesses um, by pointing her finger correctly on the, the culprit behind all the terrible things that happen um, as a as a kind of reversal that feels very Christian. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, the sense that the 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 weak shall be strong that that feeling, um, which we're going to see in other parts of the the storyline as well. I wonder if that's not, you know, maybe at play here, although that certainly doesn't work out with, um, well, I guess what, if we look at the Bishop as a hierarch, as someone in power, he certainly has a fall at the end, so to speak. Literally, um, literally he jumps off the cathedral <laughs> and he kills himself. <laughs> <laughs> um, that reminds me more of a kind of trope of hierarchs as, as evil that we see in, oh, you know, Reformation and beyond rhetoric that yeah, the Pope is yeah. the Antichrist, that sort of thing. Here it's it's not anti-Catholic, it's anti-hierarchical, right? Um, but in the slide between anti-papalism and anti-high church in England, like that's a, there's a long history to that, to be like, oh, like there's this Anglican church, but like they're really papist because they like high church stuff and they like bishops, exactly right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> so like mm-hmm. those things, like, you know, the, the anti-Catholic element, like can just be domesticated within a 
uh, state English state church context too. Yeah, and in two different ways. One where there's um, there are the non-Anglican churches that, of course, where, where of course that sentiment is alive and well. But also even within the C of E, there are low church, high church folks. You know, mm-hmm. low church folks having more of a suspicion of these elements that look too Catholic. So. Yeah, yeah, it's all possible yeah. here. And that's like, yeah, that's like a 500-year-old thing. Um, so we, we, we spoiled the end. Maybe do you think it's worthwhile <laughs> just to sort of talk a little bit about the, what happens bet- between the beginning and the end, sort of the main points of the plot? Yeah, I think that would be helpful. Let's I think so. It. We have to talk about the unfortunate fate of one Paul Sayer. Yeah, it doesn't go well for Paul. Um, so he gets... Uh, Marilee sort of gets a jump start on her career as an exorcist deliverance minister when she's trying to go see Canon Dobbs, who is her predecessor, the diocesan exorcist. The resident diocesan nut job, it seems like, is this sort of the. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there's supposed to be one in every diocese in the Church of England. It's, it's like a and, rule, I'm sure, yeah. Yes, it's a rule somewhere. Um, and even in the Episcopal Church, the it's not so much a requirement that one be, you know, on call, but it is the bishop who is required to authorize someone to perform these sorts of rituals. Anyway, um, Canon Dobbs, who's like this wonderful, like, f- um, fluffy white haired, short, kind of rotund um, character who is just destroyed by the work that he does. I mean, he's in pieces. He seems to be a nutcase um, at this point. Um, She goes to visit him and the police are coincidentally looking looking for an exorcist to help them right at that moment. How fortuitous. And they, they find her and they whisk her away to a crime scene where we have Paul Sayer in the woods um, crucified like Jesus, but with barbed wire instead of a crown of thorns on his head um, and a bunch of animal skulls lying around. Um, it's this, this is a moment where the, the, like the sort of the very obvious influences of the series come out. Like there's a lot of like Blair Witch Project looking sort of stick creations hanging around too. So yeah, oh, right. mm-hmm. big Blair Witch energy manifesting <laughs> here. Yeah. Um, and I thought the scene was going to be nerdier and more like, intellectually interesting like ooh, here we go we've got like um a kind of mock crucifixion going on we're gonna really see some like deep and interesting symbols carved into the trees and that's just kind of doesn't happen um there's not all it's not that interesting of a scene to it's, me it really yeah this the scene really did fall flat in its face but for me the funniest part about it was like the police are like oh like the bishop said you're an occult expert i'm like like they they like they don't even really totally seem to understand why she's there themselves like why they decided to bring her there like it's like sort of like an afterthought like let's throw this at the wall and see if it sticks and she's like she's like fuck off like this is awful like why did you show this to me <laughs> yeah that is kind of one of the greatest moments where there's this uh conflation of having a role and helpful expertise and willingness to cooperate with police yeah (laughs) that was that part was kind of nice um so we've got this crucifixion that kind of sets this the stage for oh maybe there's some you know satanists and people paying attention to ritual symbols um some inversions of christian imagery and 
this may be the source of some problems that are to come. So in the course of the investigation, they go from the the woods where he's crucified to Paul Sayers' basement, the place where he lives. Um, they go downstairs and they make a big discovery, Klaus. Um, so what's in the basement? What do you remember? Well, like, there. I just remember when she first comes in the house, she sees a picture of Paul and he's got like an upside down cross. And she's like, he can't be a Christian, you know, and <laughs> and they, they go into the basement and like, there's all of this uh, Satanist imagery and images of uh, Baphomet and all of this paraphernalia. And so uh, they're talking about what this could mean. And and like then like very officially and authoritatively, uh, Merrily starts going off on this like distinction between the two kinds of Satanists that there are in the world. And like they're the one oh, yeah. kind is like the sort of like party, party heavy metal head kinds of people who just like do the, the pan sign when they're rocking out to Black Sabbath and Emperor and whatever whatever black metal they're listening to. Klaus, you like, seem to know a lot about this part. I'm just wondering I don't if there's really, a part of I mean, your not, history not, we need not to know about. A, not like really in any kind of, <laughs> not in a way that any real metalheads would, would respect or find interesting. Okay, but right, I, I've, right. li- I've listened to heavy metal in my life, is I guess the only <gasps> thing I want to say about it. Um, but yeah, and then she's like, well, then there's also like the real Satanists who are organized and are trying to defeat Christianity and like are this sinister force like battling us in the shadows and like have this sort of intellectual integrity about opposing Christianity and so on and so forth. Yeah. And there's this image on the wall uh, of what the police assume to be the devil. And here, Merrily seems to suddenly have some expertise. Um <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was like, where did, did they teach you this in deliverance minister school? It's like, because it's like doctor exposition, cool. like logs on basically. At this oh, point. totally. Totally. So she's like, well, not quite. It's Baphomet. Um, and the, she talks about how, you know, there's this desire for all knowledge, you know, whether moralized by the Christians into good or evil, you know, it doesn't matter one needs to pursue all knowledge and that's one branch of what it means to be a Satanist, etc. And Baphomet appears to be associated with some kind of knowledge. Well, um, I did a quick little Googling uh, to learn a little bit more about Baphomet because it was not uh, a name of a demon that I was aware of. I mean, I'd heard it before, but didn't know anything about it. Turns out the name Baphomet first appears in some medieval texts that discuss the accusations and wild accusations against the Knights Templar in France. So unfortunately, this is an area of history where it's very hard to find out. Um, what we have are the accusations. What we really don't have are, is any way of knowing what the Knights Templar were actually up to. But they get accused of you know, the usual list of uh, terrible sins. Um, they sound, in fact, a whole lot like what the Cathars were accused of. So things like illicit sexual practices are, of course, number one, because they're, t- they're very exciting for everyone to talk about. Um, but also demon worship of some sort. Um, and it looks like there is a theory that the name Baphomet may be in uh, a kind of corruption of uh, Muhammad uh, mm-hmm. in, and that that went down in medieval French at some point that we had this kind of convert, this kind of um, transformation of the name and how it was pronounced. And this may be due to the Knights Templars contact with Muslims uh, in their 
in their time in the Holy Land, uh, crusading off um, in the Levant, right? Mm -hmm. So there is some accusation that... Per, per, <laughs> did I mention we're dog-sitting? We're dog-sitting. Baphomet speaks. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So there's an accusation that the Knights Templar may have incorporated uh, Baphomet or Muhammad in their very complex, highly symbolic universe of rituals, but it's totally hard to tell. More directly, our source, though, comes from 19th century French occultists who got excited about Baphomet again, most famously a guy called uh, Eliphas Lévy, or as he was born, Alphonse Louis, uh, Louis Constant, who made a famous image, um, who, uh, an artistic image of Baphomet as a frontispiece for his book. And it looks just like almost exactly like what you see on the wall of Paul Sayer's basement. And according to um, Lévy, it come, the name Baphomet is not a corruption of Muhammad, but instead comes from, <laughs> wait for it, this part is really fun, a backwards spelling <laughs> that owes its origin to Kabbalah, um, Jewish a form of Jewish mysticism, right? So here it goes. It's If you spell Baphomet backwards, um, you, get, you can sort of derive it from this Latin phrase, templi omnium ominum pacis abbas, which translates to father of the temple of peace for all people, which just sounds so much nicer, right, than you were appropriating Islam. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, th this could be what's going on there. And I, it does reflect something of this kind of desire for knowledge where, wherever it comes from. But the image, you've got this uh, pentagram on the forehead. You've got the two horns, this kind of uh, goat-like uh, face. You have the uh, breasts on an otherwise male form. Um, and other aspects of the image that correspond directly. So this looks like where it's coming from, this kind of uh, esoteric form of knowledge that folks today like um, certain strands of... of hmm, Neopagans, neopagans yeah. actually, um, read authors like Eliphas Levy. So he has some connection in that direction, but here we, we take it in a much, much more, you know, satanist direction yeah well and a much more obviously sensationalized direction it's like yeah. there are also if i recall correctly uh images of orgies on the wall right is that also part of what they find yeah i think so they there's, certainly later find you know videos um of, right there's a with video. evidence there's of a, there's a video this is the video that like broke canon dobbs's brain or whatever that uh, oh right yes right so yeah um and this is the thing that again, goes back to the QAnon connection, but like, right, there's an emphasis on Satanists having pedophilic rituals and like that's part of their their sort of modus operandi. And there is, for me, what I found striking was like there, and I don't know a lot about the Satanist community in Great Britain, the Satanists in the United States, like, I, like the way that this portrays Satanism is like, is like, wildly inaccurate <laughs> in terms yeah. of like what Satanists themselves would say about what they're doing. And, and, and so like, I wanted to just flag that because, uh, Marilee Watkins speaks about like, Oh, right. There's just like the Satanists are just like the bad guys of history. And like, like that does map onto like actual religious communities, uh, that are like fighting for first amendment rights in, in the United States. And, mm -hmm. and like that, like having these sort of conspiratorial, uh, 
pedophilic orgies is is not really the the program there um so just like at all right yeah just to put that out there (laughs) good yes So let's move to another like key scene from the show, and that is one that happens at the hospital. So Marilee gets called in. She's, you know, <laughs> her new job is really wild and actually puts a huge strain on her relationship with her daughter. But in the middle of the night, she's called into the hospital. She's the exorcist on call. And there's a guy called Denzel Joy. Um, I don't know. Denzel, Devil, Den- maybe there's something there. A, yeah, yeah, I think Denzel, I it's know. a strange name. Is Denzel like a super authentic English name? I don't, or Welsh name or what? I'm glad you asked. It is, it is Cornish, Cornish as, yeah. as of course, you know, you know, already you're just quizzing me that you know, from a strong, from a stronghold, from a strong high place, something like that, I believe. Okay. So Den- Denzel Washington, most famous, uh, to have, Denzel, most famously has yeah. a, Yes, um, who apparently was named after his father, who was named after the doctor who delivered his father. Mm-hmm. We, we meet him in the hospital, and all the nurses have been complaining. They're, she th- um, Merrily, Reverend Watkins, thought she was being called to the hospital to attend to the person who is dying. That would make sense, you know, generally how chaplaincy, hospital chaplaincy works, um, or to the family of the person who is in medical trouble. But no, it was the nurses who requested um, a spiritual advisor. So you'd think she would go talk to the nurses, a normal next step in in chaplaincy, talk to the people who want you there. Not what she does. She goes to the room to visit the man and she starts praying with him and she holds his hand um, and he appears to be in a coma and then he appears to flatline and she feels really creepy. This guy is giving her the creeps. But then after he has died, he sits up in bed, opens his eyes, and squeezes her hand. With really I filthy fingernails. That's, that's really emphasized. Ew, so gross. And then cuts into her palm. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Wow. Guys. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. They are very creeped out by Denzel Joy. Denzel Joy grasps her hand, sits up in bed, and even though he is flatlined, digs his dirty finger- fingernail into her palm, and she cries out in pain. It draws blood, and suddenly she has a kind of quasi-stigmata, which is interest- an interesting moment. Um, what what did you make of that scene? Well, I thought Klaus? it was what the, the scariest scene in the whole thing, because, and I mean, I guess if you've seen a lot of horror movies, I mean, it, it, you knew something bad was going to happen. This guy seemed creepy. And the nurses make a point of being like, oh, he's like this person who kills animals and sexually abuses children. And so, yeah, like what's interesting is that the nurses, as you mentioned, called 
merrily in it isn't the case that the evil bishop mick is setting her up to be possessed but that is indeed what seems to happen and this is one of the weird things you say it's like a stigmata it's also like this sort of like germ theory of demon possession and i would i was going to ask you what you think about the sort of the demons in this whole thing because he's i mean the the supernatural bit is that he sits bolt upright and says scratch scratch to her as he scratches her in the palm after he's dead that's that's something and like he's sort of with her for the rest of this this show like he's kind of popping up and this is like where another major influence is is manifest he looks he reminds me a lot of bob from twin peaks he's got like the long like you know stringy hair and sort of the perpetual glare oh, for and sure kind of looks like uh down at the heels he's got like a big bob energy coming off of him and yeah like the interesting thing is that like it's almost a germ theory of demon possession like what did you make like what did you think happened when you saw this when he scratches her fin- her her palm and then and then she, like she was having problems before but then she's like really having like bad dreams and like her relationship with her daughter gets really really strained after that like what does the scratching mm-hmm. do to her like what's the point of that yeah this is great so what are the ways denzel joy uh, inhabits or possesses or affects people around him so before he dies he's in the hospital and the nurses report feeling him inside them penetrating them sexually in some you know mystical way uh, or demonic mystical way i suppose and that's something that merrily reverend watkins also later reports having experienced she sees visions of him um, when she's sleeping when she's awake sometimes in the backseat of her car or in her own church when she's trying to pray uh, or when she's attempting to exercise a church where there's been a desecration later in the show so those are some of the ways that he manifests. I do think, though, though that even if Joy is able to um, inhabit and possess those nurses and, and um, assault them supernaturally without the kind of scratching and germ theory idea, it seems much more concentrated in Merrily up to that point. She seems like she has a... If we buy into her mentor, Hughes' theory, she is vulnerable in some way you know um because of her failed relationship but there also seems to be a kind of physical manifestation of this yeah through being and, infected like, they sort of gilded the lily a little bit because it's like well she's vulnerable because of her emotional situation but now like she's physically been made vulnerable through this scratch and it's like well which is it or is is it like the the scratch supposed to be this sort of like really over the top concretized metaphor for the whole thing i don't know uh, it's like I kind of thought that the emotional thing was enough, but like this sort of I guess, this is like yeah. a seal on mm-hmm. it. I guess this was sort of like you know sort of uh, puts a bow on it. The scratch. Yeah, I I absolutely think it wasn't necessary as you say. But what does it add? What other symbols does it call to mind? Yeah, you it, know, yeah. I think it's important to think about a kind of uh, demonic response to the stigmata. On the one hand, you know she's been penetrated, just like in the hand just as Christ was she's wounded there that bleeding uh, comes up um, several times throughout the miniseries she looks down in her hand and oh it's it's bleeding again 
right? Um, in yeah, those moments yeah. where she seems most affected by Denzel Joy's energy, spiritually wounded, etc., it shows up. So that hand has a um, a spiritual demonic. That wound has a spiritual demonic character to it, which is it's like an inver- it's a, an inversion, concretizing it's an inversion. It know, is sort of the mockery that sort of thing. But it's also a kind of showing of an interior state. Yeah. It's a sign in a really important way that feels kind of like sacramental theology, yeah. right? It's yeah. Um, yeah. it's an outward invisible sign of an inward invisible, uh, phenomenon yeah, here. Yeah. yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's a good. I think that's a good defense of it, and it's worth it because that's like an actually that's like a real hair raising moment, and I'm not sure the show series, whatever we're calling it, really rises to that level again for me in terms of actual scare power there's a moment in the second episode at the end when she has a fight with her daughter jane and jane's been seduced by uh these satanist characters tarot card reading people we'll get it we'll talk about that maybe in a minute but jane's leaving her daughter's leaving she's like 16 and merrily's really upset and she goes into the chapel to pray, and you see Denzel Joy creeping up on her, and that was like a total Twin Peaks Bob moment, if there ever was one. Oh yeah, like, yeah. That was that was yeah. There's it really heavy homage. I wanted to talk next a little bit about a another scene of demonic importance, and that is the desecrated church. So there's just a little parish church that seems to have nothing to do with anything at first. Um, and who goes first? Is it the cops or no? I believe it is. The cops are there. The they're already there at the church. Well, I don't know. I think they're. And then I think, that's how she finds out. I think out. The, the 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 local vicar reports it to the police, and again, I don't know. It's not clear totally from my memory what happens. Okay. But they're all there. The cops are there. The the exorcists are they're there. All they're all there. there. They're they're like yeah, making profound statements about stuff and whatever. Yes, and so uh, what happens there? This little parish church that seems to have no connection to anything has had a desecration. What happens? Somebody has. Uh, beheaded uh, a crow perhaps on the on the altar knocked over um, some of the I I believe it's a candlestick holder Mm -hmm. um, and generally uh, tried to do a kind of ritual pollution um, commit ritual pollution against this holy place so we're trying to yeah and so you know you're an exorcist you got to go go out and exercise the place uh, fun fact, you can exercise not just people, but also um, places and things. So um, in this case, the church needs to be basically reconsecrated because this has happened. And so that's one of the jobs of the exorcist. So Hugh encourages her to be the one to do this. And she starts to pray and she 
holds hands. Hugh says, you know, should we should we pray together before we begin, before you be, you begin? They hold hands and suddenly the one holding hands with her is no longer Hugh, the friendly your friendly neighborhood misogynist demon, you know, exorcist exorcist teacher, but instead it's our favorite. Denzel Joy is clutching her hand again. She might start bleeding a little bit more at this point. I don't really remember, but she is in no no shape and she gets chewed out by Hugh at this point. Her being in no shape to perform an exorcism, do the job that she's been called to do. And it's all her fault. And she's, yeah, like, you know, there's, like, there's, there's, so, like, yeah, there's that scene. And then like later they meet and talk about it. And he, he just like chews her out all over again. <laughs> he like chews her out like three times. <laughs> it's like, you're you're in no shape to be doing this work last. You know, it's like, okay, okay. You know? Yeah. Um, Thanks a lot. You're so helpful in yeah, this. Yeah. I, one, one of my favorite responses she gives to him, though, is when her daughter is some later in the plot is taken up into this... Um, this plot to overthrow the cathedral and knock it down in a kind of one-upmanship of what's happened at this small church. She says, well, you know, it is my daughter, so I'm going. <laughs> I don't care if I'm not ready. She kind of gives him, you know, um, sends it right back at him for the first time, really. And that was one of my favorite moments. Yeah, and there, there isn't, there, she gets mad, but yeah, that that is like a, at least a compelling reason. I thought what was interesting about the crow sacrifice scene, first of all, like Merrily and Hugh were like, the police are like, what is this? Like someone messed with this bird in here? And they're like, this is very important. This is profoundly significant for our work. You, yes. have you, you've never heard about the beheading of a crow on an altar? Um, and, the, and the police are like, huh? So you think this has something to do with the crucifixion? And they're like, undoubtedly, the people who did this are the same people who crucified what's his name and i just I, what i love about this well the things that i find funny but also disturbing about this show is those moments of complete apodictic certainty on the part of the yeah. exorcist with like well this is what this this is who the satanists are you know and or like this is what they do and these have to be the same people i'm like 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 merrily so unsure of so many things but about certain things she's like well this is these are just these this is our man you know it's it's so funny yeah i really want to i really want to go to exorcist school to learn the weird things that she has evidently picked up because a lot that she needs to know, Hugh has failed her in. But then there are these moments where it's like, well, obviously anyone who would desecrate using a crow, is it's obviously the same people who did a crucifixion. It's like, is that obvious? I'm not sure that's obvious or what the rationale is there. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Maybe I'm missing something. You said you wanted the crucifixion scene to be like more symbolically rich or something. Maybe we're missing something on the significance of the crow that we can figure out after we record this episode. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish there had been something sort of that if we had drawn on more symbolism there, that would have been a great opportunity to kind of tie the things together, you know, or if we'd had among our kind of skull animals, maybe we had some birds that were dead there. Maybe I missed that. Maybe I do that remember nice in Hereditary the little girl chops off the head of a dead bird. It does, it does, it seems like it is yeah. a, if, you know, there are a bunch of things that cross over between the two of them. Hereditary was made afterwards, but you have like the, the seances and the tarot cards and apparently the beheading of birds as like important motifs in, in uh, coven life, I guess. I mean, if we're drawing more broadly from European, you know, religious, you know, pre-Christian European religious 
customs. One that was known even in ancient Rome would would have been to kill birds yeah, and like read their entrails. Yeah, right. um, so, like one of the things that connects the 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 village church where the crow desecration happens with the broader plot is that the it's hereford right i, I keep blanking on the name yes of so yeah so the, the cathedral at hereford has a a saint whose bones are interred there thomas de cantaloupe that's how you pronounce it pronunciation wars let's let's go how would you say it <laughs> Yes, actually, the same way. Thomas Cantaloupe. Um, I keep thinking of him. Cantaloupe. Can- yeah, just call him Cantaloupe. The cantaloupe, really. yeah. Tommy Canty, as, as he refers to him throughout, this, this, with this kind of, like, stupid familiarity. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> oh, speaking of Tommy Canty, though, um, he's the one that actually ties us back to that other church. because he That's was... what I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. Great. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he... Go right, for it. So Sorry. That's, so the, 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 where the crow desecration happened is where he was baptized. And so... That's the, they're trying to undo, the Satanist cabal is trying to undo the, the sacred power of Thomas Cantaloupe in the Hereford area. And the big major step they're taking is Satanist Bishop Mick has the bones of Thomas removed from the crypt for, for like preservation purposes. But what Hugh, Hugh the Bold figures out, Hugh the conspiratorially minded, is that this is all a plot to remove the sort of sacred substance of the cathedral so the Satanists can, like, do what? Like, profane a church? Destroy Christendom? Unclear. Like, it's like this... It is, like, to me, like... It takes me... takes me, and I, and I guess hopefully all of us, back to the interview we did with S. Jonathan O'Donnell about, like orthotaxy and like things have to be in the right place in the right sequence like oh like we're fighting over this spiritual territory it is a lot like spiritual warfare stuff to me the kind of logic even though it's so high church it is it's sort of it's like high church spiritual warfare is what i was getting from this (laughs) i like that yeah i think that's right so yeah so meanwhile this is all set to go jane merrily's daughter has a boyfriend who's an altar boy, but he's a Satanist altar boy. Sick, right? They're more <laughs> Satanists than like Anglicans in this town from what I can tell, yeah, but whatever. Yeah. Certainly more Satanist characters than Anglican characters. In any case, so he has been picked to be, to be apparently, and this is a real tradition, the boy bishop. The bishop picks a young man to be the bishop. It's kind of like an inversion that happened on St. Nicholas's Day, December 6th, I believe. Yep, and until the Feast of the Holy Innocents, December 28th. That is yeah. how long that the boy bishop reigns. Yes. Yeah, what did you find out about the boy bishop? This was, you know, embarrassing to say, this is my first exposure to this tradition. So what was... what was This should... Yeah. This should absolutely not be embarrassing. This is a really, really weird uh, detail, um, and it's not a popular practice in contemporary Christianity. It was somewhat more widespread. It may have begun in, in France uh-huh. in the Middle Ages. So it was somewhat more widespread. And you can think of it as connected to other festivals of inversion of the social order. So Carnival yeah, would be an, classic another example, yeah, yeah. classic example of this kind of um, taking people who are in power and deposing them briefly 
and 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 ritually um, only, and raising up people who are not in power for this brief time, which seems like it would destabilize on the surface the social order, but actually reaffirms it, it. reaffirms it because that's the joke. Everyone's in on it that the boy bishop is not really the bishop. No one's confused about that. This does not actually threaten anything, but reaffirms how grounded we are in the way things are and and the joke so the mm-hmm. joke the ridiculousness of the joke i think is what i hear you saying like that's the the sort of the the fact that something doesn't belong here and the humor around that is like what is a sign of what the legitimate order ought to look like so it's like a negative image of it and it makes sense because it's also related you're talking about inversions the way that uh, the Christian heresiologists imagine satanic Satan worship in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. and I guess in the 21st century, according to Midwinter of the Spirit, that it has to be these ritual inversions, and so they're par- they're sort of piggybacking off of a more legitimate spiritual inversion, is what I exactly. Oh, great connection. Yes, that is certainly so. And so here we have there's another kind of inversion at play here there's the as you pointed out there's the satanic sort of piggybacking off of this but what's important here as a kind of opportunity for our satanist uh suppose supposedly hugh Hugh and analyzes this later and says oh this is a moment of great um vulnerability of the cathedral because its spiritual head is missing and at the time that hugh makes that comment we don't yet know that the spiritual head the bishop is himself a satanist which draws into um question why this would be necessary in the first place. There's not actually a spiritual head that's any that's worth anything. But one could make a really interesting critique and say it was never the... A cathedral is never dependent on a, on a bishop for its spiritual health. It is, in fact, about the prayers of the people yes. that worship there, um, not, mm. not the church hierarchy. Um, and there's there's another moment where they do indicate that that is that is part of the power at least of the cathedral so i think one could lean into that a bit what do you think yeah it it's interesting to think about the way the clerics are heroes and villains in this and i'm thinking about a piece that appeared in the revealer recently this recent issue by uh, Matthew Kressler, who's a scholar of Catholicism, and talking about the juxtaposition of the horror of The Exorcist, the film we've talked about, and it's obviously relevant for this. Uh, we're getting the Anglican version of Exorcist sort of gothic horror going today, but that, how that juxtaposes with the actual like horror of the clerical abuse scandal and making sense of like the like sort of Catholic genre horror and the actual horror that goes along with this hierarchy that enabled untold numbers of sexual abuse cases and cover-ups um and so i don't know i'm thinking about like the way that horror sort of fits so naturally with clerical identity in reality and in pop culture yeah and i was interested in how while one could draw a line from the evil satanic bishop to the pedophilic orgies that they really didn't go for that in this show. Although there was this kind of an opportunity there. Oh, you, you didn't think he was involved with that? You didn't think he was involved in that? No, he was. He, yeah, he's in, but yeah, he is. Yeah. Not, you know, it was Paul Sayer who's, you know, 
really the bad one who's leading. And, and it was Denzel Joy who's the bad one who's involved more heavily. And it's like the bishop, when he talks about his involvement with these groups, is they, they didn't have any direction. His focus was absolutely on... Um, the ch- yeah, the profaning church the church and destroying the church. The church. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I think it's um, right. And, to, yeah, but, yeah. and somehow that was related to seizing power, which didn't quite get. <laughs> you're, you're seizing power, the power of the church to destroy it, I suppose. Yeah. But there wasn't an emphasis on, yes, and now I can get away with, you know, evil sex crimes, which right. maybe pedophiles wouldn't say anyway to start, but whatever. Um, there, it seemed like there was an opportunity there. And then I wondered about the different contexts of the U.S. versus Britain. Um, the Catholic Church versus the Anglican Church, et cetera, and why and why right. and how that may not have been as live an issue. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that clerical abuse is an issue that cuts across all kinds of denominations and religions. So it's not as if the Catholics have a premium on it. I mean, it is obviously a huge systemic systemic problem in that you know that hierarchy. But um, yeah, I I would also be curious to see how it how the connection between like pedophilia and this, these sort of evil clerics and Satanists like was legible in, because, because it's super legible for us. We're like, Oh, people are talking about this stuff all the time. And then plus we get the Catholic church for 20 plus years that it's been getting exposed for this stuff. So that's, mm -hmm. can I step in and say, I absolutely agree that this cuts across denominational lines. Do not mean to suggest that yeah. somehow oh, yeah, yeah. the Anglican Church in the UK is immune from these kinds of abuses. Merely to point to the huge amount of media attention, the uh, exposure of the legal cases against the Catholic Church in the United States puts a really different um, angle on how one one might be expected to draw connections. Um, and I that I didn't get the sense necessarily that we were supposed to draw as clear a line, um, but it it may well have been there. I'm not sure. Yeah. So the plan is to have Thomas Cantaloupe's bones out of position, while the boy bishop. It's like a little bit. There's there's too many gestures. Like the evil bishop has relinquished control to the boy bishop, who's also a Satanist. How do we know this? Because he sleeps with Rowena, the character who seduced Jane to the dark side, and has also apparently seduced numerous other clerics and gotten them to kill themselves. She's sort of like the bad girl of the show. We haven't talked about her yet. (laughs) Turns out she is uh, Denzel Joy's daughter. And again, this is how like the demonic is spoken of in this show. Like she's his daughter and he allowed her to be, or allowed like actively had her sexually abused in these pedophilic rituals and so then she becomes like the living embodiment of evil like him. And in a weird way, like Merrily too, even though like she's been possessed by Denzel Joy because of her emotional state and the cut on her palm, the anti-demon stigmata thing that you, that you elucidated. So she seduced the boy Bishop too. The boy Bishop then invites Jane to come up and talk so that she can denounce her mother as the worst mother ever and also denounce Christianity. And while she's doing that, Rowena, the, like the sex abuse trafficking victim slash demon possessed girl goes up and is going to like behead her erstwhile supposed friend while she's doing this denunciation it kind of doesn't make any sense like no it really yeah mm -hmm. 
It's so many gestures, as you said. There's another one, which is that the ashes of yes, her father yeah. are given to Angela Purfoy, uh, who is another very interesting figure. But anyway, she deposits those ashes in the place of the bones of the saint. The crypt, um, yeah. As another, you know, we're, all these machinations to overthrow the church, uh, render it um, vulnerable to demonic possession as a as a kind of place as if if having this goes together this pedophile satanist bishop wasn't already like it's so that's what's so funny and i think that's what you're in some ways what you were saying like it's like things were already pretty bad if this was the guy in charge and like it's like (laughs) oh but like the real destruction is having the guy's bones removed and pouring these ashes of denzel joy in the crypt and having a bad sermon and and a decapitation and it's like what why not just burn the building down, right? I mean, like, I don't, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, it does seem like overkill. But the decapitation at least does mimic what happened to the crow. There's a ritual sacrifice, yeah. um, I suppose. Yeah. I, I, Though yeah. why it needs to be the priest's daughter and are we doing it? And, and the staying of the execution feels so Abrahamic to me, right? That's true. And that's that's an interesting point. And, like, thing we haven't mentioned is that when Merrily gets there, she, like, in she's having a vision that it's Denzel Joy who's trying to sacrifice mm-hmm. her daughter and there's like no one else there and i guess so what would you how does how does this get interrupted she like breaks through to rowena i'm like actually kind of blanking on it now like how does she how does she stop the execution yeah she uses her words and <laughs> she's like a she toddler says use your yes. words use your words use their words to uh talk rowena through to um attempt to Pull apart. This is her big exorcist moment. Yeah, you're right. She, you're right. She uses her words to pull apart Rowena from her father and to say, your father is dead. Let's keep him that way. As if to suggest somehow that this ritual sacrifice would bring Rowena's father, Denzel Joy, back into life or back into power in right. some way. You know, they've right. brought his ashes there. There's a sacrifice. Somehow that's going to bring about, I don't know, some sort of incarnation maybe i I don't really know uh it's definitely not made clear but she convinces her that that um and she sort of talks her back into what right and wrong is which is a really interesting moment um i think she says you know is this the kind of is is this kindness is this love your father asking you to kill your friend is this act that you're about to do this murder is that love like what are you you have these critiques of the church but yeah exactly (laughs) and it's enough so that she drops the sword uh knife whatever it is the blade onto the ground and then merrily embraces rowena while her own daughter is like who has just been attempted to you know the, the murder victim um attempted murder victim is has to be comforted by others which is very odd but then afterward you do get to see her you know her arm around her daughter sitting on the back of the ambulance with a blanket for shock that was at least that was the beginning of their kind of reunion but yeah that's i think that's her big exorcist moment klaus
in terms of accuracy to the Boy Bishop stuff and accuracy to Hereford Cathedral and Thomas Cantaloupe. Oh, sorry, we just call him Cantaloupe now. Yeah, the cantaloupe. Um, the cantaloupe. One minor detail is that the the skull features pretty prominently in the in the collection of bones that's being supposedly scientifically studied, and then that gets. Um, Hugh takes, okay, so remember we have the ashes of Denzel Joy that have been put in place of the removed bones. Well, then Hugh sneaks into the church and does his spiritual warfare move by um, exercising the side, uh, the crypt, basically, in the side chapel, and then putting the bones back in. And there's, there are all these nice shots of the bones, including the skull, which unfortunately in real life is in a separate reliquary at Downside Abbey in Somerset oh, since the 19th century. I know, burn. So just thought I'd put that in there. What I don't know, and I wish I did know, is whether or not Thomas Cantaloupe actually defended the cathedral um, some decade or so after his death when the people invoked his name before he was canonized. That was a story that we got from the kind of um, I know, and that seemed librarian. fake. It seemed fake, but yeah, I don't know for a fact and that's I just, not true. I was didn't have time to look that one up, but I am curious. So tweet us, let us know if you know if that story is in fact from his I would I do I would know look that the, the book canonization trial. The book for that the, the, the sort of book that was supposed to look really old was like obviously oh, yeah. not fake old. Yeah, yeah, cuz yes. it was like written in like, you know, standard English or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that was not a good a good job there. I would say that the the art looked f- close enough, but the text was a dead giveaway. Yeah, yeah, that was fake. And then I wanted to speak that sort of wraps up the the climax of the show in the finale at the cathedral but then we get a kind of further uh the the mystery gets solved it's sort of the equivalent of poirot or miss marple sitting everyone down in the drawing room and then the whodunit gets solved after our horror movie has basically ended we have our dramatic spooky climax but then we get another one and that's yeah i was thinking of foil's war where like at the he it's the end of the episode and he goes and it's like oh by the way tells everyone off and gives away like this is how i figured everything out and yes it was very classic, yeah, very British mystery standard mm-hmm. trope uh, of where you have to have like the last tell telling off and and big reveal and stuff. What I thought, and you were saying how Christian a lot of this is, and it makes sense. I mean, the book kind of fetishizes its own Christian credentials in a certain way, but the fact that Merrily confronts him, and it's very clear that the bishop could overpower her and do her great harm in this moment i'm like well like what was your plan woman like you just like went up there to provoke the the you know the magus heresy arc and you you were like i'm just whatever happens happens i'm just going to tell it how i see it um (laughs) and he takes out his like collar while she's confronting him and she's like oh you picked me because i was weak and i was vulnerable and you knew i would do a bad job <laughs> again recycling this like merrily's incompetent mm-hmm. until she's not a bit but she's basically at his mercy and he lets her go and then he jumps off the cathedral and commits suicide landing on a police car it's pretty gruesome yeah that was such a strange scene uh in so many ways one if, there, if, if we could kind of claw out something a little bit 
Hmm. A little bit interesting from that scene, I would say that he underestimated her in a certain sense, and that was his mistake. And perhaps that was due to a simple kind of demonic misogyny, right? Oh, she's weak. She's a woman. Well, (laughs) she's the one who figured it all out and stopped the ritual from happening. So you're welcome. Uh, The the show doesn't seem to want to emphasize that theme at all. Like you have to do the work to to extract it. Yeah, you really do. But it is there. his, I've been thinking a lot about what the bishop says in this speech where he kind of confesses everything and removes the collar, which must have been bothering him. I mean, they're not comfortable on the one hand, but also <laughs> it's, a, it's an act for him very deeply. So he says Christianity has run its course, that he demeans the little unorganized mystics, as he calls them, these Satanists with their little sex parties. But he is, it looks like he is kind of developing a coalition, finding some followers so that he can do something bigger. And that big thing appears to have been the destruction of Christianity. Again, weird that Hereford Cathedral is (laughs) where you're going to overthrow Christianity. You just have to be so much more deeply invested in Anglicanism for this to make any sense, I think. Um, But that idea of at least historical power, I suppose, is would make that make a certain amount of sense and but for it turns me out that's bishop, that, that's and for mm-hmm. me that's like that's the brexit link too it's like this is the the, the state church this church of england yeah. and right. like oh we're going to bring down the state church we're going to bring down england it seems to me to flow into those nativist desires to cut loose of the eu and i don't know like that's just that's, that's, it's it's not made explicit, though, in the sense that there's not a, con- a tight connection that I saw in this work between the institution of the church and political institutions. No one ever extrapolates there, which is interesting, but it's left for us to imagine. I think that's. But I don't even think it is like open. straightforwardly political. I think it's about like mm-hmm. our country, like these places that like that's like the whole emphasis on the architecture oh. and the countryside, like the real England, mm. the traditional England. You know, that's that's for me like what was what the. The, the church the anglican church is like safeguarding in like preserving this architecture and keeping these traditions and guarding these bones like and this guy wants to so it, infiltrate it and destroy it all from the inside so the church is not a kind of first battleground before we get to parliament and the queen i suppose but instead it itself is a kind of uh it it can be in itself represent the state in in its moral power i suppose uh, i think it, so i think it have it, to go at I a remove it, it re- represents the people it's supposed to represent the real english mm. it's supposed to like the, the folkways and like the sort of this the, the, you know, the kinds of traditions that conservatives are obsessed with like the the authentic the authentic expression of englishness as safeguarded by this institution. <laughs> that's my, that's so my funny on. because like no one in England is going to church, but <laughs> right. Just, well, that's, yeah, uh, but again, it's, is... it's because the Satanists are taking the bones out of the crypts, you know, like it's, of <laughs> course, that's why, obviously. Um, so it, so it turns out that the canon is the one who murdered the canon. The Bishop is the one who murdered Canon Dobbs. And he was part of the group that crucified Paul Sayer. That's a great why, line. Why, by the way, great line in they... that part where, where hmm. Merrily's like, you crucified Paul Sayre. And the bishop looks at her, he's like, he shrugs. He's like, well, we all did. <laughs> that was the amazing part. It's <laughs> amazing so Palm line. Sunday when every, 
it's a Palm Sunday when everyone has to chant when they read the gospel, crucify him, crucify yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then yeah. you save Barabbas, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not, not Jesus. Um, yeah, that that did that was kind of nice. <laughs> that was good acting. Paul, that guy, that guy is a good actor. <laughs> yeah, he was very good. Um, what about Paul Sayer? Why did they crucify Paul Sayer? Does anyone he, understand? I do because he gave the okay. video of the orgy to That's right. Cannon Dobbs. He was he was turning them in. He was a mole. Right. Um, and by he, the way, he had uh, remorse. Bishop Mick Hunter played by Nicholas Pinnock. So we'll give him his we'll give him his credit here. Props. Yeah. Props. Um Okay, and then we have the bishop jumping off the cathedral, which I also didn't quite catch from a kind of I suppose his plot was foiled and she was going to talk and so he decided to end things and you um, hear that you me, hear the you hear police sirens in the background you're like oh did she already call the police maybe that was yeah. her plan mm-hmm. maybe that was her plan that also felt yeah. true to genre of the whodunit the british whodunit is that the cops are always on the way so yeah, yeah. that felt for me i was like oh yes of course they are hashtag um, carceral christianity yeah let's go let's exactly go. yeah but his jumping off the cathedral felt a little bit to me like we've talked about this scene from mark five in a previous episode but the yeah Gerizine demoniac so jesus heals a man who is possessed um by a a demon or demons that identify themselves as we are legion and then they get um put into a herd of swine of of pigs of some Mm -hmm. sort um and then the pigs once the spirit moves from the man who is then healed of the evil spirit into the pigs the pigs jump off of a cliff um they don't actually mention this. That just sort of came to mind when I saw the scene and thought about um, possession, the devil, and people falling. Um, but the next scene, we had a kind of denouement with Hugh and Marilee back at her parish, smiley and wearing her vestments, and everything's all good now. Um, and it's from Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, often apocopated too. Pride goeth before the fall something like right, that right so sure i, th- I thought fine. that the the jumping scene that i think that's interesting you i think you're right to link it to the demoniac in mark 5 i also was thinking of the the temptations in the desert in matthew 4 yeah when satan tries to get jesus to jump off the cliff and the angels will save him mm-hmm. we, we talked about this Ooh, last very episode good too. so yeah different yeah. different layers yeah i mean like clearly clearly uh Phil Rickman is very much churchy, churchy individual. <laughs> and so he's playing <laughs> off all these resonances. But yeah, that ending scene is, is funny because it's like, oh, she's, she's decked out in her vicar's gear. She's just like, you know, preached a sermon. Like everything's back to the way it's supposed to be. And oh, actually, you, I believe she's in, um, she's in a white stole. She's in a white stole. Which is weird because it's just been... December, right? Yes, because we right. were, we know that liturgically. Um, Boy hmm. Bishop, etc. So, oh, maybe it's maybe it's Epiphany by that point. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Uh, that would make sense. Epi- she's had an Epiphany. Everything's oh. great. <laughs> I love it. I love Joyce, it. Joyce in Epiphany. Yeah. So Church we're in January at that point. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> and and now finally Hughes like, well, keep doing this work. It, finally, she gets his approval. 
right after after a whole movie miniseries worth of being berated for her incompetence she just had to save the entire church and christendom real quick to get to finally get recognized that part that part feels true to life (laughs) and of course then she he walks away and she pulls up the bandage on her hand and the the stigmata of denzel joy has vanished yes the the miraculous miraculous healing Love and it, she rec- reconciles with her daughter. They show that mm-hmm. before she confronts Bishop Mick. So, yes. yeah. Yeah. Basically, I think this is an, this whole show is a an opportunity for us, Klaus, to see how we should write something in vaguely in this genre together <laughs> that would have like a kind of more interesting, richer symbolic universe that would tie more to actual history of Christianity and of um, lore about the devil and demons that could be more specific and textured and, and interesting. Um, yeah, this is a real opportunity for us. Y- yeah. I mean, clearly uh, midwinter of the spirit did so well that they're, they're going to be recruiting us to, to step in. Obviously. The, yeah. As they're, to, well, they'll need historical ex- experts. So that's obviously going to be to, us to so. crank out the copycats. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I, it was, it was, it was definitely fun to think with and, and watch through. It was weird. And maybe, maybe weird's not weird's a dumb word, but it like blended these genres of horror and British mystery in in ways that like you could kind of tell you could anticipate a lot of what was going to happen. Like there weren't huge plot twists. Like you knew Bishop Mick was was a little bit. You knew he was treating Canon Dobbs kind of cavalierly. In well, this. and he also like made the moves on Merrily. And exactly. And then he comes over with a bottle of wine and tries to seduce her. And, and, and so we, we know this guy's sort of like in this, in the moral universe that midwinter of the spirit inhabits and generates like sex was like a immediate sign of moral fallenness. So like, <laughs> like, like, you know, Rowena's Rowena gets clergy to commit suicide or become you know, heresy arcs through sex. She's turned into a demon through sexual abuse. Boy and Bishop is trying to get in Jane's pants and she resists. And, and that's and another And is pushing mm-hmm. that agenda. Yep. So like yep. sex is like this link to like the demonic and that links to the intense anxieties about family unity that sort of are cropping up. Again, like our treatment of the exorcist from like a long time ago like the the demonic is a lot about like gender roles and a view that the family is under attack and these sorts of things yeah tellingly the only instance when sex could have been good theoretically was if she had been more interesting sexually to her husband she could have kept him from straying because again it's it's all her fault that he's the one who broke his vows right right or she could have like she and she sort of seemed maybe a little bit interested in keeping things alive with bishop mick like she she wasn't like repulsed by that she was like oh interesting 
you know, like... Well, I mean, he's really hot, but it was (laughs) inappropriate in terms of uh, supervision. You know, she's going through a really tough time. She's obviously really vulnerable, as we keep harping on, as the show really wants to forward (laughs) to us. The the real message is, like, women priests are vulnerable. Yes. Um, But she's gone through a very difficult time. One of the sort of sexual harassment 101, you know, prevention, um, sexual assault prevention, inappropriate relationships in the workplace is is about being aware of those dynamics. When someone is overworked and tired, et cetera, um, it's harder to hold boundaries. And right, so right. I think that felt realistic. I mean, who, you know, Definitely. when you're looking Definitely. for validation and affection um, and maybe just a good old, you know, a fun time, a distracting fun time with some sex, you know, that yeah. felt that felt real to me. I liked that. I don't know. I guess, I guess we'll, I mean, I would wrap up by saying we've got a few, a few movies coming down the line that blend my interests in police procedurals and the demonic. We'll let, let, let the listener infer from their own experiences, what those, those films might be, but they'll be coming at you soon. And I thinking about doing, putting out a bonus episode or two that sort of ideas that have have been accumulating along the way uh, as I sort of trudge through grading season. Uh, But yeah, like this is, I don't know, I'm I'm psyched for this, this summer cinema series and, and sort of, you know, balancing out heavy patristic and medieval theology with uh, like ITV genre pieces. seems great. (laughs) Yes. Here's to that. Here's to having some, extra fun this summer with our film series so thanks for listening see you next time this pod is made possible by support from the satanic board asmodeus mammon leviathan beelzebub and listeners like you thank you thank you